Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative, uh, joined as always by my trusty sidekick and our fearless leader, Tony Anderson. Hey, Tony. Good afternoon once again. So while it's still a niche market, we've been closely watching developments in the electric vehicle market. Here at Cherryland, we see the electrification of our transportation sector as an opportunity for us to sell more of our only product, electricity, which is good for everyone we serve because it helps to keep our rates affordable. But in addition to that, we see as we increase our carbon-free electric portfolio, we believe that the path to a low-carbon transportation sector is likely going to be electric vehicles. So joining us today to talk about electric vehicles is Bill Marsh Jr. Bill partners with two of his brothers in the Bill Marsh Automotive Group, a 250-plus employee multi-franchise dealership group based in Traverse City. Uh, And you guys have been here since the early 80s. Is that Mm -hmm. right, Bill? 1982. Well, there you go, right there, 1982. They sell Buick, GMC, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, Hyundai, and Ford. Mm -hmm. Um, And when he's not busy with the dealership, Bill is super active in the community, including a cause that's near and dear to my heart, the NMC Foundation. So thank you for your service to NMC. And he also does a bit of blogging and public speaking. And I am a follower of Bill's blog, so I encourage you to check it out. It's called Making You Matter, and you can find it at BillMarshJr.com. So thank you for joining us today, Uh, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here, Rachel. Illustrious guest. So Bill, can you start us by kind of giving us just a big picture overview of what the term electrification means to the auto industry? When, when, when you guys talk about that, what are you actually looking at? What different technologies are kind of evolving? Well, the industry uses the term electrification to, to describe the entire sort of gamut of applying electric power to the to jet propulsion, or not jet, to propulsion, vehicle propulsion. And there's a lot of acronyms that the industry uses. For example, ICE, which stands for Internal Combustion Engine. So electrification, um, especially for us, because we're in the distribution end, we're on the manufacturing end, for electrification for us um, really revolves around, um, for one, using electric power, battery power, to augment ICE or uh, the internal combustion engine. Um, all the way to fully, you know, electrified vehicles to even hydrogen fuel cells. So, it, but in our industry, the application of those varies greatly. For example, you know, with full, they call BEVs, battery electric vehicles, have a very, very low um, penetration into our market. But um, electrification is, you know, is is pretty prominent. For example, I'm driving, I drove here in a 2019 RAM pickup that has a technology called eTorque, which is a 48-volt battery <laughs> that integrates with the with the 5.7-liter Hemi and increases its torque by over 120 foot-pounds. So oh. that truck, that Hemi truck, uh, typical uh, uh, V8 Hemi in a half-ton, Dodge, uh, half-ton RAM is rated to tow about 8,000, maybe 8,500 pounds. This vehicle will tow over 12,000 pounds. Does that affect all four wheels when it's in four-wheel yes. drive? Yes. So, I mean, you think of the power, and that's what electric, mm-hmm. you know, electrification has tremendous power. They're using it in auto racing now, um, and it has tremendous uh, torque capabilities. And so we're seeing that uh, Buick uh, LaCrosse since 2012 has, a, has had a technology called e-assist 
that um, that is electrifies the vehicle. It doesn't add uh, it, it does add torque, but it also helps um, propel it from a stopping position so that the vehicle can have the auto stop feature. So we're we're seeing a lot of that, and then it moves kind of through a progression from um, from from what they call mild hybrid, you know, to hybrid technology, which is most popular, which we sell more of than anything. Uh, to you know, to, to plug in hybrid, to fully electric, all the way to, to hydrogen fuel what's, cell. What's your most popular hybrid? Uh, by far the Hyundai Ionic, which has been a as you know we don't hybrids are not a big part of any electrified vehicles beyond what I just shared with you uh, with the Ram, are not um, they're a small percentage of our sales. I think we sold so far this year, twenty three to twenty five Hyundai Ionics. Um, and, but um, that particular vehicle has really made a foothold in the market where we are seeing people, you know, the Prius has always been the standard of the industry, <laughs> and we've seen a lot of Prius and tenders and Honda and tenders as well um, driving away in that vehicle. What's interesting, though, is there's a lot of political um, <clears throat> undertones and, and uh, forces that shape the electrification of our industry. For example... Hyundai now makes a fully electric, a BEV, fully electrified, uh, fully electric um, Ionic. But we couldn't get you one if you wanted one because of California emissions. California has a rule that a certain percentage of Honda's, of Hyundai's product line has to be, they have to sell a minimum number of fully electric vehicles in order to do business there. So literally all the electric vehicles are going to California and then two states in the East Coast, New York and Pennsylvania, have similar laws. So there's a lot of regulatory issues that are affecting the penetration of electric vehicles in the U.S. market. So are those same types of states and and that regulatory environment also driving the kind of retooling to be producing more electric vehicles yes. or are they just sucking up the available stock? Well, I mean, they're, uh, as a distributor, I can't really answer that with a lot of confidence because I'm, I'm speculating. And my, my take on what the industry is, is doing, and, and I get it from your manufacturer, they don't, if you're a manufacturer, you, you have no idea, not that you have no idea, but, but you have, it's very difficult to, to predict where the propulsion is the propulsion of choice, you know, is going to be in five or 10 or 15 years, right? Um, it could be electric. It could be hydrogen. It could be many variations of the internal combustion engine. However, since we don't know, the manufacturers like General Motors, like Ford, like Hyundai, are making investments in each one of those technologies so that in the, in the event that one wins out, they'll have a foothold in that, in that market. And so there's a ton of investment that's going into these various technologies. Um, and, for example, GM just recently announced that they, are, they have two fully electric models that they're planning uh, to introduce in the market. One of, them, one of them is a Buick by 2021. They expect to have uh, close to half, I think, five fully electric vehicles in the U.S. market by then, by 2021, mm-hmm. and like 10 or, or more by 2025. Will any of those be all-wheel drive? That's the biggest question we get around here is that you know, that's we a want funny, an all-wheel drive question. or I we want a truck. I, th- I think there may be one of those GM models maybe an all-wheel drive mounted on like a, uh, like a, like a, almost like a, a Chevrolet Bolt with an all-wheel, with a, with a 
all-wheel drive feature on it or that type of mm-hmm. vehicle, kind of a crossover. Yeah. But very few, most almost all of them are compact, subcompact, midsize uh, sedans. Why, why do you think that is? Is it just that's where the technology is or yeah. is that where the market? I think like the people the, who are likely to want to drive the early adopters well, are? Yeah, because they're primarily um, geared towards urban and suburban areas, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm not an engineer, so I can't comment on the on whether or not that it's it's impacted at all by the, you know, by the powertrain, by the mechanics of the powertrain or the technology of the powertrain. It may be, you know, although all-wheel drivers today are very efficient, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, vehicles. But uh, so there's there's just a lot of different forces that shape the acceptance and the economic viability. You know, I know that the manufacturers, I know the earliest. That, that anyone predicts a, a manufacturer to be profitable in electric vehicles is 2025, the earliest. They're losing millions really? of, of dollars. Well, recently a, a startup company called Rivian came, came out with a four-wheel drive truck, a four-wheel drive SUV. How, how does a company like that compete in the market against the GMs? And, and will the, their introduction of a pickup and all-wheel drive push GM? At all. You know, that's a good – yeah, because the, the name of the game in, in the auto industry is scale. And I heard, I read about Rivian, and it's an interesting concept. I, I think they're going to be niche players like that. But if you're going to if you're gonna compete and you're going to offer an electric vehicle at any kind of a price range that's competitive, you've got to have scale. When I say scale, that's a manufacturer term for being able to drive down sure. production costs through volume, volume right? Yep. And, and that's why, you know, companies like GM and Ford and others who have a global footprint – um, can can afford to invest in these technologies, and then they have to because you know you look at the political situation in Europe. There are cities in Europe that are talking about eliminating ICE internal combustion engines in their in their central city within the next ten years. China has actually talked about um, uh, outlawing internal combustion engines by 2040. So you think about the global impact that that has in a nation like China. If you're a global manufacturer, man. You've got to be you've got to be thinking about that and planning for that. So it's not just this market; it's it's it's, it's globally connected. So I think you'll see companies like this Rivian, um, but I think uh, my my bet is that they're going to offer some pretty an interesting product. But if they can't get scale, it, it, they're going to have trouble competing on a on a price basis. They're, they're talking about sixty one k in an article I read. That's yeah. it's easy to talk about price before you ever produce anything. It is, yeah, and and. They won't have anything – their production won't start until 2020. So it's, yeah. it's still out there a ways. But. And a lot can change since then. I know the, you know, the, yeah. the Model 3, the Tesla's Model 3, they were uh, originally targeting that vehicle for about a $35,000 price. It sounds like it's going to be around $49,000 uh, and up. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're having trouble meeting those, those price uh, targets. Yeah, I feel like and, – and this is – a layperson's kind of perspective. But in my mind, some of those disruptor companies, whether it's Rivian or Tesla, what they do is they help change public perception. Right. And then public perception drives policy and regulatory pieces. I mean, to your point, everything you're describing, whether it's China or California, that's policy driving an industry to adapt to to, to change. Right. And I, that, that often happens, I think, as perceptions change. And that's where I see the, the disruptors. But at the end... I, mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think we're all going to be driving around in Rivians. And te- no. I hope I get to drive a Tesla someday. Can I just say that? I wouldn't mind driving a Tesla someday, but I... I, I got to drive one. Did yeah. you? Yeah. My neighbor um, is a retired Chrysler exec, and he's, he's just, he loves technology. 
and we were at a at a neighborhood meeting. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, and he starts going on and on and on about this Tesla, and I'm like, oh yeah, whatever. So uh, after the meeting, he goes home and gets it, and he pulls it up to my driveway. He goes, get in this thing and drive it. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was one of the most exciting cars I've ever driven. I mean, we went, we were up and <laughs> we live off of Cedar Run Road. We went up to Gray Road, and he goes, "Step on it!" And we, I shouldn't say this, we were at, we were over 100 miles an hour, and I mean, seconds. It's crazy, isn't it? it They're really crazy. zippy. Yeah, yeah. Now, was, have you driven a Chevy Bolt? No, I haven't. Okay, I was curious how they compare because we have a Chevy Bolt in our fleet here. And it, it goes quite fast. Yeah. Not that I, Tony has ever I've driven it. I've not had it up to 100 miles an hour, but well, it, it will move and that's off the, the start I mean, line. That's, that's the draw of electrification is it's a ton of power. I mean, there's yeah. no, there's yeah. a one-to-one gear ratio, right? So you are, you press that gas and you're it, gone. You're gone. It's like yeah. a golf cart on maximum yeah. steroids. But, you know, the ch- again, I'm not, a, I don't speak as an engineer, but I've just done enough research, at, you know, because it's, it's, it's our industry. Um, but... The, one of the challenges with cold weather climates is electric is electric vehicles, and it has something to do, I believe, with the cobalt-based mm-hmm. batteries. Like GM is talking about moving to more of a magnesium-based um, battery system, which uh, apparently has a longer life but also is more amenable to northern climates. Um, and so, you know, because if, you know, northern Michigan, if you're, you know, if, you're, if your range is cut in half when it's like, you know, 20 degrees out, that's mm-hmm. going to be a challenge. Yeah. And we definitely, I mean, it's, for us, for what we use our Bolt for, it still does everything we need it to be. But we do see, we do get lower range in the winter than we do in the summer. And yeah. certainly if that was your only vehicle and you were dependent on it, that might change. And you yeah. drove long distances. I mean, the thing. It's a, a lifestyle. People, yeah. yeah. Most people are driving to work and back. And right. most of the time that's less than 200 miles a day. Yeah. And the Bolt will certainly do uh, 180 miles a day in the cold. Yeah. You know, so it's it's a great commuter yeah, car. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, everybody I've talked to who's driven an electric car really loves them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's the part that's going to be interesting to watch, too, is I think the actual driving experience of an electric vehicle, the more people who do it, the more there will be consumer demand for it. But right now yeah. it, it is something that a lot of people have never had the opportunity yeah. to even to even try out. So we've we've talked through kind of like this – all these different technologies being developed simultaneously, but when in terms of just all electric vehicles, do you what do you have any all electric vehicles no, at Bill Marsh right now? We don't. Okay, so you're like I say, we we have the capacity. We we offer uh, Hyundai offers a fully electric Ionic, but we, we can't get one. We won't see one. And have you tried to get a Bolt or what? Well, we're not Chevrolet. Oh, you're not Chevy. So, you're yeah. GM. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah. I think of them as the same. I'm a normal consumer, but... I mean, we sell um, quite a few. Yeah. I mean, we, Ford has four um, hybrid, four. plug-in hybrids between the Fusion and the Focus and the C-Max. Oh. They have two versions of the Fusion. You know, Hyundai has the Sonata, two versions of the Ioniq, and now the Kona, which is a, a small SUV, a front-wheel drive only, but the Kona is making a... a, a going to produce a fully electric vehicle. And then... Um, uh, Chrysler has the Pacifica um, plug-in hybrid, which we've sold, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I mean, Pacifica is an awesome vehicle, but um, we haven't sold a lot of them, but uh, we have sold that vehicle and we do stock it. We actually have a charging station on site. Yeah, what's the range on that? Um, it's about about 200 miles, or actually a little less, about 150 miles, but you know, it's, but Before it's, 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 it's a hybrid. Gas, yeah, yeah. yeah but it's that, a hybrid. That's significant because yeah. the Chevy Volt, the V... We'd only get 35 miles out of that before it switched to gas. Really? 
Now they're so um, that's a significant upgrade. They're going to discontinue production of the Bolt. I, I, I read announced. that. And yeah. after driving a Bolt, I, I don't blame them. Really, the Bolt is a much better car. Huh. My opinion. We have yeah. some readers who will take a s- exception to that, but well, I'm going to stand by my my Bolt comment. Isn't the challenge though the infrastructure of of charging stations? It, it is yeah. for. It absolutely is. You know, we we need more charging stations. But again, if you're just driving to work and back, like so many people do, yeah, um, it's a, it's a great car because yeah. you can charge it at home every night, and you you don't have to worry about stopping at a gas station or a charging station. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's nice. And you know, it's a, a chicken or egg thing. Like mm-hmm. either more more electric vehicles end up on the road, and then the charging stations will follow, or more charging stations will get it built out, and the electric vehicles will follow. There is. Uh, quite a bit of movement afoot in Michigan, though, to build out um, charging infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That we, with the Volkswagen settlement money, mm-hmm. part of that has to go into to charging stations. So, yeah, and someday somebody's got to build a, an adapter for the Tesla. Tesla's got a charging station across the network. It just only works for Tesla. Really? Yeah, and it, it would be nice if it was adaptable to huh. other models. Yeah, it sure would. And I, and I got to believe at some point. It, it's I mean, a, maybe it, they have to go to bankrupt first, and somebody has to buy them. But yeah, there is a. I lived in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, and they have a Tesla charging station. Really, because wow. Tesla made that investment early on. Yeah. Well, huh. there's what six, six Tesla charging stations at the Meyer right mm-hmm. here in Traverse City, and I think I've only ever seen one car there, maybe two at a yeah. time. So there's certainly excess. It's because they're out capacity. driving 100 miles an hour, and they're Tesla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Burn it up, and they're Tesla only, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now mm-hmm. my neighbor has he has a charging station at his home. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they're pretty expensive. Yeah. Get a level two charging station. Yeah. Level twos are about a thousand dollars, is what we're seeing for the the Chevy Bolt, and and we're offering a rebate to cover that. Okay. Yeah. And, and we're seeing home builders add charging stations to the houses they're building now too. What about the uh, the planned? It sounds like the. Um, Federal subsidies are going to come to an end here pretty soon. I was, I was hoping we could, yeah, we could talk was, a little bit yeah, about that. Yeah, we wanted to get your insight on that as well. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, again, I'm on the distribution end, which is all about transaction mm-hmm. uh, value. And, for example, one of the challenges we have with the uh, Chrysler Pacifica is um, it's, bec- I think, because the manufacturers can't project the resale value because it's a niche vehicle. The, the residual value to lease that vehicle is terrible. So it's, it costs you about another $75 plus a month or $100 more a month to lease a new Pacifica than it would a traditional combustion engine. So the transaction um, dynamics do not work very well. We lease over half of our cars. So I say that because this, uh, which is significant, this um, federal subsidy if it goes away, it's really going to impact the potential market acceptance and market yeah. viability. I believe it It will as well. I, I'm a guy who doesn't like mandates from the government and subsidies, but uh, as a somebody who likes to sell electricity, I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm really on the fence of I, I want to keep that tax credit for the electric car. Yeah. Because it, electric cars can be a game changer for our business. Yeah. If, if I get one in your house... I have the potential of 30% more revenue yeah. while you're saving money on gas. So, Well, and it, it yeah. seems like, so, you know, the tax credit right now is $7,500. It, it, yeah. it seems weird to me to just take it away. Like, is the price point 
a normal economic concept here would be as the price point of the electric vehicles comes down, the amount of the tax credit starts to ramp down with it. But just right. to pull it off wholesale because you've sold 200,000 of those vehicles without following the cost curve mm-hmm. of the um, vehicle price seems just – yeah. It D- doesn't seem very intuitive to me. But I also think there's some political pandering yeah. going on, right? There's like, you do what I want or I'm yeah. going to take away right. your tax credit kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, and I'm we, sure we there's a lot of lobbying time. going on from yeah. Tesla and General Motors and others that yeah. don't want to see that. Extent. We don't have time in this podcast to talk about political posturing. <laughs> but No, but I did want to talk a little bit about um, government-mandated fuel economy yeah. standards and, yeah. and how that might – first of all, kind of like what do you, what do you see as the future of – government-mandated fuel economy standards, but how might the introduction of whether it's hybrid or full electric vehicles impact Well, I mean, it's certainly going to mitigate them because, you know, I mean, the the federally mandated fuel standards have been around since I've been in the car business. And, um, you know, for the most part, there are two sides to that. I mean, on one hand, I get it. I'm, I'm more of a free market person, but I get it when you know, if the government, when the government has set these standards, the manufacturers find ways to make it happen, right? And they're pretty, they're pretty uh, resourceful, um, and you know, are are highly capable in terms of harnessing technology and 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 producing results. However, you know, one of the challenges, um, this was back in the maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, when they announced a new round of um, of fuel standards, is when the the, the the manufacturers are forced to to produce vehicles that the public doesn't necessarily want to drive. That's when it really affects our business, and we've seen that happen uh, on several occasions. And that you know that that's that's a challenge, right? But I think that um, um, I see that this movement towards electrification as sort of uh, not nullifying but rendering federally mandated. Uh, fuel standards for internal combustion engines less relevant because now, you know, it, it, uh, or the other the other possibility that are ha- they're going to happen is they're going to make them so high, which is going to force the manufacturers to to put more hybrid electrified vehicles on the road. If that were the case, I would have mixed. I guess I would have mixed feelings about that. My my challenge is if you know, if we're a retailer, we're in the, again we're in the distribution end and. And all these these federally mandated fuel standards come that that reflect electrified vehicles, and they go way up. And then we have to end up having to order a bunch of electrified vehicles that don't sell, and they sit on our lot. <laughs> that's not going to be good. Mm-hmm. That's our, that's my concern. Mm-hmm. And then what you'll see is the manufacturers throw all this money at them to get them off to 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 move them, and it creates sort of this artificial sure, economic create, situation. Creates a false market indicator. Right? Yeah. And, well, and we, we talk about that. It's not honestly any different than we talk about car, uh, carbon tax type of a, a sure. mechanism, like anything that's going to drive up the cost of one particular way of generating electricity in order to make um, a, a more politically desirable way of generating electricity look cost competitive. Well, yeah. all that does is drives up, drives up the cost of electricity yeah. for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, what you're describing drives up the cost of vehicles. It does. Because the cost to manufacture them to meet higher standards in order to make that be cost competitive against an electric vehicle. And the interesting thing is it feels to me like there's a lot of momentum in on the electric side for some of the reasons we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. I don't think you should have to create a false market to make them viable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, other than, you know, other than um, the, the significant difference between, again, until the manufacturers can get the scale and they can get a price point that's, 
you know, it's comparable and things like the residual values and, you know, that's just going to take some time for acceptance mm -hmm. to happen. And in between then, there's going to have to be some sub the subsidies to get these products ramped up to, to where public acceptance becomes sort of commonplace. Mm -hmm. That's where I think the government can help mm -hmm. um, because if I'm a manufacturer and I'm, I'm not going to uh, residualize that vehicle at all, on a, on a lease, and so there's a huge differentiation between, you know, between a, um, for electrified vehicle uh, on a short-term lease, that's, that's not going to translate well into, um, into sales. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those types of things. I, I, you know, I, I remember, talk about government regulation, I remember, um, you know, I grew up in the car business, and back in the 80s when the whole, when the Japanese, when Toyota was sort of taken over, and the, especially in Michigan, with all, you know, what happened with Flint, and they were talking about import um, regulations, regulating and, and the, the, num the number of Japanese imports. And, you know, they fortunately, they kind of let the free market take over there. And it was good for the American auto industry because the American auto industry had to respond to that. And, and they did by creating pro competitive products. Mm -hmm. If they would have just been protected the whole time, eventually, as, as we move to a globally connected economy like we are today, it probably would be out of many... Some, probably one or two of the Detroit three would have been out of business, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, I think that government regulation has a place, but if it's if it if it subverts the the, the free market and, and consumers' ability to choose, um, it's not gonna yeah. it's not gonna be viable. Well, and to your point, it's just this type of massive transformation takes time because I also think that, and I'm this way, we're conditioned to want a lot of choices. It pertains to models and makes and colors and all these different things. And when you are in a, when you have a market that's really niche, you can't, to scale up to that, yeah. it just takes a lot of time. It so does. It, that may be the path we're on, but we may not get there next year. Yeah. Yeah. What about the employee base? Do you see that changing in your service center? You know, the, Electric cars coming in, hybrids coming in. That, that's got to change yeah, the um, requirements for a mechanic. Well, I mean, it's certainly, and we we've seen that already with um, just the just the amount of technology, uh, safety technology, and you know, um, drivetrain technology. I mean, we we now have eight, nine, ten speed transmissions. Uh, the demands on technicians, we no longer refer to them as mechanics because they're almost like mini engineers mm -hmm. to fix these sophisticated electronic, electronic components and navigation systems. So we've already seen that. Probably my biggest concern, is, and it probably extends beyond my, the rest of my, my, my brother's careers because as long as we're you know, in this business, we're in our 50s, the internal combustion engine is going to be the standard. We have, there's tons of them on the road. But I think eventually you're going to see... Um, it changed that because you know they don't they just don't require the maintenance that mm -hmm. that uh, traditional internal combustion engines do. So you, I mean you're definitely going to see it change, but I think that's a long ways away. But it, it changes your whole business model because right now your 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 business model assumes a certain amount of ongoing maintenance from the customers absolutely. you serve. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely, that's really and service and repairs and mm -hmm. things like that. But you know you've got. You know, for the next foreseeable future, whether that's 10, 20 years or whatever, you're going to see it. There's going to be a ton of um, ICE vehicles mm -hmm. <laughs> out there that, that are going to require a lot of, you know, the average, the average age of a vehicle today is still like 10 years. Mm -hmm. It seems, seems crazy because we yes. sell a lot of new cars. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of older cars out there that, that require service. Yep. You know, they talk about that with autonomous vehicles, which seems crazy to even imagine. They talk about how once e e autonomous vehicles reach a certain stage of penetration, 
that you know body shops will be out of business because they won't crash because you know the because they're all, the autonomous vehicles are much more you know mm-hmm. safety uh, and accident averse. It's hard to imagine that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'd be interesting to see how the autonomous vehicles operate around deer and moving animals. Yeah. And- and what happens when you rear ends when somebody rear ends an autonomous vehicle? You know, they go out and just, yeah. who do you exchange a license with? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is that awkward moment where you have both autonomous and not autonomous yeah. vehicles yeah. out on the road. Some, who do you yell at? Yeah. Someday we'll have you back for an autonomous <laughs> vehicle discussion. Yeah, because yeah. that will be interesting. And and speaking of which, we're r- running right up on time right now. Did you have any other questions before we go to fun facts, Tony? Uh, no. Do you have anything else you wanted to add before we go to fun facts, Bill? No, I just think that I, I think this is an exciting time to be in our industry because of the, these technologies that are reshaping things. But I think it also makes it very exciting from a from a distributor standpoint, from our for, for us, but also from a consumer standpoint because there's going to be some really exciting products, mm-hmm. a lot of choice. And it's it, you know ch- change can be something that is that you, it, it, you either meet it with terror or with yeah. excitement. But I do, I agree. This is also an exciting time for our industry because we have this. Um, significant load growth potential on the horizon, and we haven't had that kind of opportunity in a long time. We've met our members' needs as it pertains to other things, but shifting into the transportation sector is an exciting yeah. opportunity for yeah. us. And like I said at the start, it's significant growth potential while helping the environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we rarely see a win-win like this, and, and we're on the what feels like the precipice of a great win-win. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So uh, with that, I asked our guest today to bring with them a fun fact. So I'm going to kick it over to you, Tony, for a fun fact. Uh, GM and the U.S. Army are jointly working on a next-generation hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. So while we're all excited about batteries today, they're already working on the next generation of hydrogen fuel cells, which also rolls into where do I fuel up with hydrogen. So it's, it's it has range anxiety as well, but certainly new and exciting stuff Mm. going on. And in all fairness, we do have better infrastructure for answering the question of where do we fuel up with electricity today than we do. We we do. We do. I'm I'm not too worried about (laughs) hydrogen, but we haven't even finished electric and they're already moving on. It's Mm. just fascinating me. That's really interesting. Bill, did you bring a fun fact? Yeah, I'm actually, my yours went to the future. Mine went to the past. You know that electric vehicles go all, date all the way back to the mid 1830s. When a Scotsman named Robert Anderson invented the first electric carriage that was produced was powered by non-rechargeable batteries, and in 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 the early 1900s, you you may have now you may be too young, but you've probably heard of Studebaker. Oh, so look at me. <laughs> look at me. Yeah, you may be too young, but Tony's not. Tony's not. So you probably drove one, right, Tony? Yeah. Did yeah. I get that wrong? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I, can't, I can't remember when Stuart Baker exited the market, but most people at reached a certain age. They remember that that uh, that car nameplate. They actually were the first ones to actually mass produce an electric vehicle in the early 1900s, which is crazy. Just yes. think about that. What's yeah. what's old is new again. And non-rechargeable batteries. So yeah. you had to drive somewhere and get a new battery yeah, and put that's, in the car. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't the Studebaker. They, by then, yeah. they already had rechargeable. But back in the – I mean, imagine the 1800s, they were using – they had electrified right. carriages. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you have to ride your horse to go get a new battery <laughs> for your car. I guess it would work. It, you know, it sounds crazy, but we were just at a panel on electric vehicles uh, in October where they talked about one of the – things that got kicked around was rather than building out charging infrastructure, do you build out all these stations filled with batteries and I roll up and you take my current battery out and put a fully charged one in? Is that 
Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, Is yeah that, I do. It, clearly, that probably isn't, but it's still interesting <laughs> yeah. to, to, to think about. Kind of like that. the propane for your gas grill, right? Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Just, just put them in the rack. <laughs> so my fun fact is battery focused um, because uh, the the battery is ultimately one of the largest costs that needs to come down in order to continue to drive down the cost of electric vehicles. So EV battery prices have dropped from $1,000 per KW in 2010 to $227 per KW in 2017 and are expected to get as low as $100 per KW in the early 2020s. Nice. So we're seeing significant and steady decline in the cost of battery, which will drive down the cost of those vehicles. Wow. Well, Exciting. I, I want to thank both of you for taking the time to sit down with us and talk through this. I, I doubt this will be the last time that we will talk about electric vehicles, but it's an exciting time for both of our industries and, um, and hopefully also for the customers and members we serve. So thank you both for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.